1: Tune in to On The Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them, go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking A Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey now, and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to have you join me on another exciting episode. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can find us at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. And just a very quick note on YouTube, that platform has been a fantastic growth vehicle for the show, especially since we've upped the video quality. It's become also a very fun way for me to interact with all of you because it's the one platform where People can leave comments while they're listening. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for Uncorking a Story on YouTube and hitting subscribe. For you audio listeners out there, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcast. All right. Today, we are talking with Justin Woodbury. And uh, this is another episode where we really uncover the importance of intent in writing. And for those of you who have listened to the last few episodes, particularly the one that I just released with Chrissy Holm, you've been hearing me talk about the importance of focusing the intent behind your writing. Now, Justin is going to share his story with us in a moment. Uh, to give you a little bit of a preview he is a male survivor of sexual abuse from an adult woman and this abuse was shoved under the rug by his pastor who was more worried about saving his own reputation and that of his independent baptist church rather than helping a young boy uh, address the trauma that he had experienced by the hands of a 30 plus year old woman when you think about it Justin had every right to seethe and write his memoir with the intent of outing everybody who had done him wrong, you know, kind of, uh, almost like a, I don't want to, uh, belittle it, but like a Taylor Swift song, you know, like a revenge song, this could have been a revenge memoir. And that was actually his intent when he started to write the book, but something changed within him early on in the writing process. As he started to write his intention changed from venting his anger to using this book as a tool to help other victims of child sexual abuse. And when he made that change, as he as he will explain in this interview, the book became easier to write, easier to write on a number of different levels. So as writers, when your intentions are rooted in something positive rather than something negative, you will find that your writing will get easier. Now, I can't even imagine the pain that Justin had to re-experience as he was writing the chapters, recalling the sexual abuse he experienced as a minor, uh, recalling how his own pastor blamed him as the victim. You'll hear that in this conversation. It is preposterous. And I think I even use the word preposterous. Uh, not a word I use every day, but certainly fit in this scenario. I mean, blaming the victim of child sexual abuse is something that I think should lead to imprisonment. He was also unsupported by his family at the time. Um, but as he's going through The writing process he is got the full support of his wife and he armed himself with the power of forgiveness and with with those two things he was able to produce something that will help other abuse survivors and particularly those who were abused in a religious setting so please remember that my goal with uncorking a story is to make you a better writer to help make you a better writer and my advice for you today is to really reflect on your intent as you approach any writing project whether it's a blog post or a short story or a novel or a memoir make sure that your intent is rooted in something positive and your writing will flow better and you just might find some healing through the writing process that is my lesson for today now let's uncork justin woodbury's story Justin Woodbury was raised on a small farm out in the country on the west side of Ann Arbor, Michigan. A child survivor of church abuse, Justin began advocating for victims of abuse after he held his son in his arms for the first time and realized the weight of responsibility he would have as a father. Since then, Justin has made it his life's mission to speak out against abuse in all forms and to be a voice for victims, especially those who were abused in a religious setting. He joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about his life, in new book, Sheltered But Not Protected, Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal After Emotional and Sexual Abuse. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Justin.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Justin, I'm happy to have you here. And I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin?
0: So, you know, when you were reading that bio of me, I think the, the the story begins when I really was holding my son Jackson in my arms for the first time, looking down at him and feeling this overwhelming weight of responsibility to look out for him, to protect him, to provide for him. And uh, I don't know that I, I thought at that point man, I need to write a book. Uh, But that was what got me talking more about my past and things that I wouldn't do to be able to make sure that he was protected. And as I talked more and more about it to my wife, she actually was the one that suggested that I write a book. Uh, I don't have a background in writing. In fact, I think I probably didn't enjoy writing in school. It wasn't my favorite thing at all. But uh, I, I had a story to tell and I needed to tell it. So
1: so how did you how did you start off um this project you know did you did you just start by by writing chapter 1 or what what kind of work went into setting up what would eventually become this book
0: Yeah for sure so it, it was a, a lot of it was based off of just conversations that I would have with my wife and her reaction so we we were brought up in similar environments very strict independent fundamental baptist churches so uh, we would kind of compare stories as we would get to know each other. And uh, her reaction to a lot of my stories uh, told me that I grew up very unique, even more so than she did. And so one day, she, after my son was born, she's like, you should write a book. And so I th- I, I started thinking about it, and I decided, you know what, I am going to write a book. Uh, the The process really was... Just I just started, I sat down and started writing things that I could remember. Uh, and I, I, I brainstormed, wrote a bunch of ideas, and then I split those ideas into chapters. And then I just started um, writing the easiest chapters first. And when I say easiest, uh, the ones that were not as hard to write based off of the, the trauma that I had experienced growing up. So I, I tackled all the easiest ones first and then slowly started unpacking some of the more, more difficult chapters. And so I, I don't even know if that's the right way to write, but that's the way I did it.
1: Well, you know, for something like this, I don't think there's a wrong way um, to, to tell yeah, such yeah. a personal story. Uh, I'm curious, as you sort of started digging in, you know, it sounds like you were trying to tackle the easy stuff first. Maybe it's the surface level stuff. But as you start getting deeper into kind of what happened to you, what what was that like for you personally? I mean, did you did you wrestle with that? Were you re-experiencing that trauma or was this somewhat therapeutic for you?
0: Yeah, it was. So I knew sitting down and writing this book could have two possible outcomes. One is I could just get all my thoughts out on paper. I could publish this book. I was angry at the time when I wrote the book. Like I said, looking down in my son's arms, realizing this weight of responsibility also made me realize that I was not protected growing up. I mean, the name of the book is Shelter, But Not Protected. So looking down on my son's arms, realizing that I had not been protected like I wanted to protect my son, it made me angry. And so the the, the beginning of me writing the book was, was out of anger. The decision to write the book was out of anger. But I didn't want to actually sit down and write the book out of anger. And so I would sit down before I wrote each chapter and and asked myself a series of questions, including, have you, have you forgiven the people involved in this, in this book? And it was pretty easy for most of the chapters. Uh, what had happened was in my past, and there was a lot of mistakes made, but I think probably good people that just made bad mistakes. And then there's this one chapter that was my sexual abuse, and my abuser who was involved, uh, she was not a good person i think she was an evil person and so struggling with feelings of hatred anger uh, bitterness just really dark feelings and so when i when i sat down to try to write that chapter i couldn't and because i hadn't come to this place of forgiveness and i know forgiveness is such a hard topic to talk about uh, but my favorite definition of forgiveness is to its forgiveness is to set a prisoner free only to realize that you yourself what, what you were that prisoner, and so when before I had come to that place, I would not sit, I couldn't write the chapter, and so I spent months, you know, having this internal fight and reliving the abuse and waking up in the middle of the night with, with nightmares and different things like that, uh, and so that was traumatic. But when I finally broke through and came to the other side of that, it was very therapeutic, and I would say that the writing of the book as in whole was very therapeutic. Just being able to put my thoughts down on paper and it w- wanting to approach it from a balanced point of view forced me to see the good that I had in my childhood as well as some of the bad so yes, to answer your question it was it was very therapeutic for me to write
1: yeah I mean coming at at, at a subject like this, you know I, I think it's natural to to write it, you know, to think about writing out of anger, like I'm gonna write this and I'm gonna get back at this person yeah. or this group of people who did me wrong. Yeah. But when you when you write from that intent, I think it's um it it can be it can wind up being counterproductive because I think it it might be a short term feeling of release.
0: That's right.
1: But then um things can kind of go off the rails really quick. whereas writing from the point of view of, hey my intent here is to share my story to help other people who may have gone through something similar. Well that that's such a different intention. You're still telling the same story. Yeah. But coming yeah. at it from a different intent which, you know, could make you more motivated to keep writing. Yes. To, you know, to kind of keep going and and almost kind of keep discovering maybe some of the silver linings that these terrible events in your past, and I know it's cliched to say, hey, find the silver lining from some tragedy, but it, was there a point where you could you could think about, or did you come to a point where you said, you know what, Sure, certainly this is something that happened to me, but really this is something that happened for me, and this is what I've learned from these events, and and maybe it was to, to set you up to make you a better father. I mean, if the... If the spark of this book is is you holding your son in your arms, and saying, "Wow, I need to tell this story." I mean, maybe, maybe that's what, you know, maybe that's one of those silver linings. I don't want to overstep my boundaries here as a podcast host, but yeah. I'm just I'm just curious yeah. as if if you ever thought about it like that.
0: No, that's an excellent observation, and I think when I started out the journey, when I made the decision to write the book, it was to let everybody know what happened to me. By the time the book was published, it was definitely the latter, what you said. It was something that happened for me. And one of, the, one of the biggest paradigm shifts that I had was when I was talking to somebody from my past about the book. And they said, well, I'm just curious. Have you taken responsibility for your part in the abuse that happened to you? And what they meant for, what, I mean, what they meant by that was not responsibility, but blame. Have you taken blame? Have you accepted the blame for the this, you know, what was considered a, a, an, an extramarital affair? Even though I was not married at the time, I was a minor and my abuser was a woman in her 30s. Uh, the blame back then was scored 49% to 51%, 51% being on the abuser, 49% being on me. And so that was the kind of, that was how the blame was scored. And so when this person from my past asked me, have you accepted blame? Have you, have you accepted the responsibility for that? Uh, You know, it threw me because at the time I was struggling with blame and everything like that. But I think the best way to describe it is yes. By the time I hit, by the time I wrote the email to the publisher and said, go, I had accepted responsibility, and what I mean by that is I wrote a book about it. And so, you know, I think it was George Bush or Ronald Reagan that said, once you accept responsibility for anything in your life or everything in your life, you have the ability to change anything in your life. And so what responsibility looked like for me was writing a book, was starting a channel on Facebook uh, advocating for other victims of abuse, was... Exactly what you said, uh, bringing my kids up in a much safer environment with the wool not pulled over my eyes, uh, not my head not in the sand when it comes to my kids playing. Not not that I'm a perfect parent, Mike, but uh, just this ability to um, be more vigilant on behalf of my kids. And so all those to me were taking the responsibility without taking the blame. And so in that sense, this happened for me. And by the time the book was published, that's exactly how I felt. This didn't happen to me. It happened for me. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where
1: can people subscribe?
0: You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You heard her. Go subscribe. And welcome back to Uncorking a Story. Uh, We are talking with Justin Woodbury. Um, Justin, I'm curious about, um, the book and the reception of your book so far. What, what did those closest of you, um, who have read the book or had a chance to read the book? What, what has their reaction been to,
0: to you sharing your story like this? You know, it's interesting. I just came back literally before I hopped on this podcast, I was out to lunch with my sister. Uh, we share the exact same birthday two years apart. And so we're out for our birthday lunch because our birthday was earlier this week. And I found out that she has not even read the book yet. And the reason why is because she said the thought of reading it and, and hearing about, in detail, the, the, the uh, details of the abuse and the trauma that I experienced. She says, I just don't know if I'm ready to, to hear that because it's so sad to me. And so she's she's not read it. my parents, who are front and center in the book, they were the ones that, I, I guess, that they sheltered me but didn't protect me. Uh, I have a solid relationship with my parents. I talk to them almost on a daily basis. They were nervous when I, when I told them I was writing a book because they, they know that there are mistakes made, just like every parent makes a mistake. And they were nervous that I was going to um, put them in a bad light. And so I was I was somewhat disappointed with that response because I thought, man, if if there's something that people can learn from your mistakes, then you should be willing to to let it be put out there. Uh, but to answer your question, they've been supportive. They've read the book. Uh, we don't talk about it a lot, but th- that's my immediate family. Of course, my wife was very supportive. She wrote the forward for the book. Uh, I have lost probably 75% of my friends growing up uh, because they are still in what I would call a cult. the The Independent Fundamental Baptist movement is a cult, or cultish, and so they are still very much in that. And so, uh, even though I didn't blast all churches, I just blasted churches that were that allowed children to be susceptible to abuse, uh, churches don't like to hear that, you know, churches, the Baptist church can rip on the Catholic church and point out the Mormon church for abuse. But the minute someone talks about the Baptist church, they get really defensive and stuff. So, uh, any close family or close friends growing up, I really don't have anymore. I mean, there's, there's a group that, that I'm still close with, but that, that was the reactions.
1: Yeah. what, what's your experience or relationship now, if any, with, with, some kind of organized religion?
0: Uh, my experience is I, I hate organized religion, um, but I still have a relationship with God and we go to a church, um, but I'm, I'm, I don't like organized religion. I think that when you get man involved, it, there's, there's always a selfish motive and, and, there's it can always get twisted and screwed up and so i we have found a church that i think has a has a good balance they have a good program in place for their for the children where i feel like i can drop my 7-year-old daughter and my 9-year-old autistic son that if something did happen to him he wouldn't even be able to tell us cuz he has speech apraxia he can't talk so my son being nonverbal he couldn't even tell us even if something bad did happen to him, and so we've we've searched high and low for a church where we feel very um, comfortable. And I don't even want to say comfortable because we don't feel comfortable at, at all. I mean, it's not like we're always looking for something bad, but we we've learned that you, you know the the woman who abused me was a faithful church member. She wore long dresses, and she was in the choir and stuff. I mean, she was a model church goer. And so whereas some people think that abusers are, look like Hannibal Lecter, I think abusers look like, you know, my closest friends and family members. And so it's to say we're comfortable dropping our kids off, we've just gotten to the point where we just keep an eye on it all the time. We're never necessarily comfortable. But we, we found a, a place where we call a church home, and it's uh, it's a non-denominational church, and we attend usually on Sundays um, so I, I think it goes too far. And in, in, don't mean to be cliche, but I think you can throw the baby out with the bathwater and just reject God altogether. And we have not done that. But I, I have a love hate relationship with religion for sure, organized religion.
1: I know you mentioned you know some statistics earlier, like fifty one percent you know of the blame was hers and forty nine was yours. I mean, was that like did some tribunal or uh, legal? Um, institution come up with that? And how did they base that? Because to me, it sounds a little preposterous that you as a minor could be responsible at all for being abused by somebody you know that much older than you.
0: Yeah. It, it was my pastor who scored the blame. And in our church, he was the legal. He was the tribunal. His word went. I mean, it was whatever he said goes. So you know, the abuse started when I was 13. It was my mom's best friend. She was in her 30s. A woman married, had four kids, and it started, uh, she started grooming me when I was 13. I didn't find that out until I was older. But uh, the the sexual abuse began when I was a junior in high school, still a minor. And the reason he, the reason my pastor scored it like that, and, and by the way, After the abuse was done and over with and the church finally found out about it, uh, as a mandated reporter, my pastor was supposed to go to the police and and turn this woman in. And, you know, I talk about this in my book, too. Not only was there this sexual abuse going on, but in the middle of it, she started conspiring with me to kill her husband because she wanted her and I to be together together. And our church didn't believe in divorce and remarriage. And so the only way in her mind for us to be together is if her husband disappeared, died. And so there's a conspiracy there. So my pastor should have gone to the police. Uh, My parents should have gone to the police. I think they failed me there. But they didn't. It It was pushed under the carpet. It was hidden. But when I did go to my pastor about it, the reason he scored it like that is because there's a story, and I don't know how much how familiar you are with the Bible, but there's a story in the Old Testament of the Bible where an older woman came on to a younger man, and the man ran. His name was Joseph. The man ran out of the woman's house that he left his his cloak or his garment in her hands because she, he she wouldn't let go of his coat, so he he like took it off and ran out naked out of the house, and that's much how much he was fleeing this temptation of this this fornication or whatever. And so my pastor said, you were not a Joseph. You did not run. You let this happen to you. And for that reason, you are 49% to blame.
1: I mean, it, it, you know, again, I, I didn't grow up in the same environment you grew up in. Um, but I, I do know uh, abuse when I hear it. And I think he's as liable for not reporting. I mean, that's, yeah. the, to me, that's, it's criminal. And this woman She's not just I mean, she clearly is a predator, but mm-hmm. yes, she's clearly got some mental problems, too. If 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 she's thinking about killing her husband, you know, so you and, and she could be together um, that that reeks to me of some severe mental illness.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I agreed and agreed. I, my pastor was absolutely uh, responsible in, in playing a part. And, and the other part, and I talk about this in my book too, is I never received counseling, Mike. So, you know, from the time they found out until I started writing my book, the only extent of counseling that I received was to make sure that I was truly sorry for what I had done. I had to meet with this woman's husband and read him a letter that I had pre written that my pastor had to approve, apologizing to him for stealing his wife. And she had to meet with my parents and apologize to them for her part in it as well. But it was very, um, it was just step by step by step, you know, to make sure that I was restored back into the church environment. But there was no counseling to make sure I was okay and not messed up from, from all that had happened. So it was, it, I mean, if you want to write a book about all the things to do, to, to not do that. that's why this part well, of the, reason I mean, I what, the because... what he's
1: doing is covering his ass i mean that's pardon yes. pardon the expression but that's that's yes. you know that's that's what's happening um absolutely i have to ask uh and i don't know if you address this in the book or not but when you're sitting down talking to that woman's husband i mean what's that like i mean what what is
0: that experience like it was so shameful that's the only way I can describe it. I, I felt so much shame because I'm sitting in the pastor's office. He, like I said, he had to approve the letter. I think he even made edits to it. And so he approved it and then I rewrote it or he edited it. I rewrote it. He approved it. And so I'm sitting there with this letter and he comes into the office. He was so angry at me. I'll never forget it. He he came in and my pastor tried to get him to sit down and he's like, no, I'm good. I'll keep standing. And he was just standing, just looking at me and so I read the letter to him, and I'll never forget. He's like Justin. I'm I'm praying for you because you're sick, uh, or something along those lines. I don't remember the exact thing. Uh, and then he walked out, and that was that was the end of it. And t- and it's it's not funny, but I, you know I wound up graduating from college and becoming a music director and teaching at a local Christian school. And when um, when I did that, her name was Carolyn. I talk about her in the book, but her name was Carolyn she and her husband well actually she enrolled her oldest son in my choir and so i still had to see her and her husband face to face and um it, you talk about the feeling of shame every time i saw him it was just these feelings of shame and it was just a messed up situation but it was it was not fun talking to him at all i mean the whole thing was horrible how long
1: between all this going down you having that meeting um you know, with the, with the pasteurized letter that you had written and your pastor had edited how long between when that goes down and you like finally leaving
0: this, I'll use the word you use cult. Yeah. So I I was, I was 18 when I had to read that letter and I did not leave that cult until I was 29. So 11 years.
1: What was the final straw that, that had you leave? I mean, if it wasn't all of that, I, you know, was there something bigger that happened or was, was there, was, was your health in jeopardy because you've been carrying this around for so long?
0: My health was definitely in, my health was definitely in jeopardy. That's not why I left. Strangely enough, I graduated from college and came back to be the music director of that same church that I had grown up in underneath that same pastor that had scored that blame Forty nine percent to fifty one percent, and for the next, and, and, and as you can imagine, this guy was a sick person too. The pastor, there, there is, I talk about it in my book, but he had some serious problems, and he was an abuser himself, um, just m- emotional and mental and psychological abusive. And so, I, I came back. I was the music director. I fell in love with. Uh, the assistant pastors, one of the other pastors' daughters, and the the b- because of my reputation, because of my background, that forty nine fifty one percent, you know, background, uh, this guy wanted nothing to do with me for his daughter. And so uh, she and I sneaked around, uh, and I know this sounds ridiculous because I was 27. uh, She was in her 20s at the time, but we sneaked around and had a secret relationship behind everyone's back. And so when it was finally found out that two consenting adults were sneaking behind their parents' backs in their mid-20s, when it finally came out that that happened... Um, they actually did decide to make that public, even though they hid the other stuff and didn't report it to the police. And they, there's nothing to report to the police with my situation. And when I was in my later 20s, but we had to go before the church and confess um, having a secret affair, and um, all sorts of stuff. And, and at that point, I was I was shamed out of the church, and I moved from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Colorado where I live now. But had I, had that not had happened. The way it went down, I probably would still be in it today because that's the that's the power of a cult. You don't even realize it's a cult. It took me years to to come out and say I grew up in a cult.
1: Wow, um, are your parents still part of the same um, cult slash community? They are.
0: I imagine. I mean, they. Yeah, okay. they they've moved from Ann Arbor, but there's the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church is all over. So they moved from one. Cult church to now they're in another cultist church. Is this is this pastor
1: uh still around the the guy who um you know you were uh you were kind of under uh back in back in those uh, days?
0: He is he's retired now but he's he's around he goes to the same church in in Ann Arbor. did
1: Did anyone there try and come after you when when maybe they heard that this book was
0: being written? A little bit. But but not all pastors, and I don't want to broad brush pastors or even churches, um, but a lot of times they're cowards. They'll come down on church members and women and children a lot, but they, they're they cowards when it comes to other stuff. So, you know, I, I consulted with lawyers before I wrote the book, and they said that, you know, in order to prove defamation or whatever. Th- there's all these different rules that have to be met. And so when I told the guy what I was going to write about, he's like, you're probably safe. If you want to be on the safe side, change the names um, in the book. So I did that except for Carolyn's name. Um, at the time when I w- wrote the book, um, I had I had experienced so much healing that I didn't feel like it was inappropriate to use her name. Uh, but I changed all the other names. And so yeah, I got some I got some threatening letters from some pastors, uh, a lot of gossip, a lot of slander about me, but um, not not as much as you might think. I, I think I, I think the talk was a lot stronger behind my back instead of to my face, but not not a lot of not a lot of it.
1: Yeah. Um, what's What's the main message you want a reader to take away? You know, um, having read this book, Justin, what, what What's the main theme you're hoping? a reader will take away? Well,
0: you know, I, I wrote it with a specific kind of niche, or two specific niches. Number one, people that have been abused in churches, um, and secondly, probably men that have been sexually abused. And when it comes to the abuse in churches, I, I really want, I mean, the, the, the people who are the angriest that I wrote the book are probably the ones that need to read it the most, uh, because there's just not good systems in place in a lot of churches to protect children from abusers. And I, I like to say that churches like the one I grew up in and other churches, they're a predator's playground. Because you can walk into a church, you can wear a, a suit and tie and carry a big King James b- Version Bible. And you, you, you if you look the part, you must be the part if you if you talk the talk, you must walk the walk or whatever. And so, you know, before you know it, you're teaching Sunday school to little kids. And so predators love the opportunity to go in and volunteer in a ministry where there's little kids and then they abuse children. That's what happened to me. And that's what happened. The, the stories, Mike, that I heard from people even growing up with that I had no idea. I found out their parents were abusing them. All their Sunday school teachers were abusing. Them. It was just heartbreaking. And so the, 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 it's a wake up call if, if churches would read the book and just think twice about it. And what I said about, you know, my, pred- my, my abuser was a lady in her mid-30s that was the first one at the altar when there was an altar call. She was in the choir. She was in the nursery. Uh, she wore the long dresses. And so the, another thing I would want people to get is to it's not the person that you probably suspect that's an abuser. It's probably the one that you least suspect. So in that sense, that's one point. The other point is I am not an anomaly for being a survivor, whatever you want to call it, of male sexual abuse. Uh, The statistics are higher when it comes to, to, to women, but there are a lot of men out there that are survivors of male sexual abuse. But I am an anomaly for telling my story. There's not a lot of men who are willing to get on podcasts or to write and publish a book. And the reason why is because it's not cool. I have been called so many – I've been ridiculed more by the world than I have by by the church um, and been called a pansy and, you know, a a buttercup and and stuff just making fun of me because, because, you know, if you watch the movies um, like American Pie and Stifler's Mom, there's this – Hollywood, I think, has – has sensationalized, you know, m- men having sex with older women or stuff like that. I mean, if you've, if, you, if, if the roles were reversed, if a, if a woman, a young girl had sex with an older man, everyone sees that as clear abuse. It's not the same when uh, when it's reversed. And so I think another point I would drive across is, and there's been so many men that have reached out and said, me too. Now, they won't say it in public. But they'll say it behind behind closed doors. And I think that we need to come far as a society to recognize that it's not different. It hurts. I'm a living example of someone who went through living hell for years um, and Destroyed my body, almost destroyed my marriage as a result of sexual abuse, and so it does hurt. It's not cool. It's not the male sexual right to passage. It's a horrible thing, and men need to be able to realize that. And I think we as a society need to get a little. I I love the Me Too movement, right? I think that it's we've come a long way when it comes to believing women survivors. I think we're way in the dark ages when it comes to male survivors, and I, I think good things are happening there, but. Um, I guess those would be two points I'd want to drive across.
1: What What do you think led to your healing the most? I mean, was it coming to acceptance and, and forgiveness? Was it writing this book? Was it a combination of things? I mean, what, you know, if you were to tell somebody, give somebody some advice saying, hey, you know, Justin, this happened to me as well. I'm a wreck. My marriage is in jeopardy. Uh, my career is, you know, spiraling because it's it's all kind of coming to an head. You know, there's Past trauma, PTSD. What's What's the best piece of advice you could give somebody who comes to you and says these things?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, counseling helped, but I would say that three things: one, writing the book; two, coming to a place of forgiveness or letting go or, or whatever. Because I know forgiveness. There's so many things around that. I hate to even say the word, uh, but writing the book uh, was therapeutic. Experiencing forgiveness was therapeutic. I would say the last thing, and I don't know if this is something that people control, is having a supportive spouse. Um, my wife had good reason to walk away from our marriage when we were younger because she was convinced that I did not love her. She would approach me and try to initiate uh, romance, sexual, whatever, and I would push her away because uh, because of I would have PTSD from from what had happened when I was a young teenager. And she experienced rejection and hurt, and she she came alongside me and was in the arena with me, fighting alongside of me, trying to help me heal from it. And th- that's something I didn't even know I needed until I was able to look on the other side of it and say, wow, um, having a supportive spouse that fought for us uh, probably was the biggest thing, and the biggest thing out of my control, I didn't choose that, it just happened that way, but... That, that was huge for me.
1: Yeah, that's uh, let's let, let's let's make her number one in, in your story.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah,
1: for sure. You know, because had you not had that, um, because you also had a, a motivation to to kind of get better because I'm sure you didn't want yeah. your your marriage to end or continue to suffer. So, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, wow. Um, thank you uh, so much for sharing all these uh, deep and, and personal uh, things with me, Justin. I know you. You did, of course, share them in your book, "Sheltered but Not Protected: Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal After Emotional and Sexual Abuse." Justin, where can people pick up your book?
0: Easiest way, place is on Amazon. Uh, I mean, it's it's in Barnes and Noble. It's in Walmart. It's it's even on eBay now. I think people have read it and now want to <laughs> resell it. But uh, it's on Amazon's the best place. Just Google shelter, but not protected. And Amazon's the first link that shows up.
1: Sure. And I know you mentioned having a podcast before. Uh, what what can you share with us uh, about the podcast and where can people find it?
0: Yeah, so I, I have two podcasts going on currently. One is a work podcasts. Uh, I I work in the marketing department at a financial uh, company and I interview other financial advisors. uh, And that's called Advisors Unscripted. But the one I'm working on now is actually my best friend growing up read my book. And he he and I started a, a mini podcast and we haven't published it yet. But it's just called Shelter But Not Protected Unscripted. And that's just where uh, he was with me during a lot of what happened. And we just kind of talk about the different chapters, uh, but but we haven't put that out quite yet. So sure. All
1: right. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. And if people want to learn more about you, Justin, do you have a website? Are you active on any social media? Can you share some handles
0: with us? Yeah. So at shelter, but not protected is, is my handles on all the social media. I'm mostly active on Facebook, uh, but uh, sometimes instagram and then i do have a website sheltered but not protected dot com and then my email address is justin at sheltered dot com so i took the butt out there to make it shorter just it's just justin at sheltered dot com
1: all right justin i will put all of that in our show notes so people can find you easily as well as links to where to buy the book uh justin thank you so much for stopping by uncorking a story and letting me uncork yours
0: yeah i appreciate it thanks mike